We are starting a new series called The Big Story. And what we're talking about is that God, from the very beginning of time, has this story about how he relates to people. And what his plan for people is. He's got a plan for you and I individually, but also just corporately. He has a plan to speak to people, to guide people, to direct people. And that's why you're here this morning, most likely, is to hear something from God's word that says, you know, guide me, direct me, instruct me. Let me, how can I know you more? And that's why we sing these songs, they're songs to God. And so God's got this big story. And so what we talk about is how God's big story interacts with our little story and our family and our job and how does this relate to our commute and all these kinds of things. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to see, we're going to start a four week series of four consecutive stories about Jesus just coming on the scene and how Jesus's story and God's story and our story all kind of play together. So what we're going to do is we're going to do the same format we did several weeks back. Um, most of you know this, but Bob Ramsey was a professor at Azusa Pacific University before we stole him away from there. And so a very gifted mind, gifted speaker, and he's going to kind of get us up to speed on what's going on. And then uh, I'll come up and uh, bore you guys with some signs. All right. So like John was saying, we are jumping into the gospel of Luke and we're going to look at the four episodes kind of right back to back at the beginning of the gospel where Luke is very consciously trying to introduce us to Jesus. And so before we jump into this, it seemed like a good idea for us to think together a little bit about exactly how this works. I don't know if you guys have thought about this much, but we often, you know, if you're sitting in church, you sort of assume that the Bible is God's word. It's something, it's a way that God speaks to us. And yet, how did these particular books get thrown into the particular place that they are? How did this become regarded as God's Word? We're going to look at this in a lot of ways where we're going to focus on the way that Luke uniquely is telling this story of Jesus. You guys probably know that there's four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that God chose in the way that he put together the New Testament to tell the story of Jesus from four different points of view. And so we're going to focus on Luke's point of view. And what's really cool about this is that Luke answers one of the basic questions you have when you go to read. And that is, so, hey, what is this? When you open up the gospel of Luke, anytime you open up anything you're going to read, you want to ask that question, what am I reading? What is this? And, and you do this intuitively. When you turn on your TV, you know that CN, you're going to get something from, different from CNN than you get from ESPN, right? If you go, you flip on the internet, you know that a blog is different than your Facebook page, which is different than a picture of a cat on Instagram with 14 hashtags. And you know that when you go to read, that the Orange County Register is different than, say, a novel. Um, Especially different than the novel The Black House that I just finished reading last night. Terrible. I got to the end, and I kept thinking, I don't know this is very good, but... He's probably going to wrap it up at the end. I even stayed up late because I didn't want to go to bed with it unresolved. I got to the end. It was bad. I was like, really? The whole thing is like, oh, you didn't see this coming in anyway. But suddenly this guy has a recovered memory that he knew nothing about. And I, as the reader, knew nothing about too. And it's like, really, dude? Come on. You got to the end? Don't read the blackouts. So... (laughs) But the thing is, is when we open up the Gospel of Luke, we ought, 
usually we have some assumptions that because it's in the Bible, we figure God's in this and it's some kind of like almost magic book because God's in it. But actually Luke begins by telling us in rather complicated prose how he actually came to write his book, to write the gospel that we now call the gospel of Luke that God uses to speak to us. And so we want to take just a minute to look at that before we jump into the first passage in Luke 4 we're going to look at, okay? So as Luke begins, he begins by saying this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And with this in mind, since I myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Now, if you didn't find that to be a particularly exciting and compelling beginning to the book, it's because it's not, okay? This kind of throat clearing is rarely exciting. This is why... Action movies usually start with an action sequence, you know, and not this kind of thing. But Luke wanted, and Luke, under God's guidance, wanted us to be really clear about how this book came together. He wanted us to know, first, what it is we're reading. And, and notice the word we highlighted there. I'm, if you were here a few weeks ago when I last preached, we're actually using highlights that you can see now instead of making the words disappear. So we're trying to raise our game each week. Um, So this phrase here, an orderly account, that's actually a a genre of literature. And what he's saying by telling us that is that I am telling you the story of Jesus from a very particular, selective point of view. This is not comprehensive. I'm not going to tell you everything that Jesus did. And I am selecting the stories and, and telling them in a particular way to create a particular image or vision of Jesus that I want you to have. That's what it is. Now, there were other ancient books contemporary to the Gospels called Annals that were comprehensive, and I've read some of them, and they are terrible to read. They are like, I, I like second graders. This is not a <coughs> critique of second graders, but have you ever asked a second grader, so how was your day? Or tell me about your day. Well, we did this, and then 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 we did this. and then we did this, and It's not very good storytelling. You know, they just kind of tell you what happened. Luke is telling a great story, and there are things he wants us to highlight and wants us to get. And Luke also tells you that, look, my my book's not the only one. And in fact, there are other stories of Jesus, and I use those to create mine. You know, you probably assume if you've not very, um, if you haven't been at this for a while, that Luke was probably one of Jesus' disciples. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, never met Jesus. He was a convert a couple decades later. And in fact, he tells us how he came about this. He says, I did investigate everything from the beginning. I did research. And then to go back, he tells us what his sources were. He says, look, many have undertaken to draw an account of things that have been fulfilled. He's saying, look, I know there's other gospels out there. And Luke, pretty obviously, when you look at it, used some others, probably Mark as one of his sources. That was probably the first one. And then he says um, things that were, this phrase here, handed down to us by those who were eyewitnesses. And he's saying there's two things here. I talked to people who were eyewitnesses, and then there were things that were handed down, and that's probably oral tradition. 
stories that were handed down from people to people to people. And it's important for us to realize that in their world, because not everybody read, they were really good rememberers of oral tradition. That was super accurate. So the fact that something was handed down orally, you know, I mean, if John tells something to me and I tell it to Nate and Nate tells it to somebody else, by the time he gets to the fourth person, it's gone. But in their culture, they were really good at this. So it means this stuff is entirely accurate. But look at what Luke is trying to tell us. He's trying to tell us that I did some research, I wrote down this story, and here's the picture of Jesus I want you to get. Now, some of you are probably feeling a little uncomfortable because you're thinking, man, that doesn't sound very spiritual. It doesn't sound very... I want the Bible to be a little more miraculous or something like that. Well, here's the deal, and I say this both as a scholar and as a Christian, is that it is a complete miracle that God used Luke, who thought he was doing research at the time, to give us exactly the book that God wanted us to have and that God decided to use human means, a human tool, to write this book. And I want you to think about this. Doesn't God always do what he does in our world through human means? That if you're not comfortable with God using human beings to accomplish his goals in your life, you're not going to get a lot done. (laughs) You want to get used to that, yeah? That God works through people. And so the gospel of Luke that we have is exactly what God wanted us to have. He used Luke in a really powerful way. So as we're talking along, we're going to say, Luke is trying to show us this or something like that. Please understand, that means God is at work in that particular process. But God chose, not me deciding to make this out, but God chose to use a particular guy who told us he was doing research to tell us these stories about Jesus. And for me, that's an amazing thing, that God always works through people. And, and again, if you're going to experience God's love in the next week, it's almost certainly that you're going to experience it from the hand and the voice of maybe somebody that's sitting here today. God always works through people. And he works through people who are filled with the Spirit. And that's what we're going to see right now as we move to the passage. So, Let's take a look at this, and here we go. So this is the beginning of the story. We're going to start at Luke chapter 4. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, Luke is right after uh, Mark, and it's just before John. It's about 80% of the way through your Bible. And these are the beginning of four consecutive stories that we're going to look at that Luke is very consciously trying to let us know what Jesus is about. And so this is the beginning of Jesus' story. It says, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And this is where Luke shows particular insight. (laughs) At the end of them, he was hungry. He's just trying to help you out in case you're a little slow or his intro in chapter 1 puts you to sleep. He wants you to know that after 40 days of not eating... Jesus is hungry, okay? So he's, he's, dialed, he's pretty dialed in here. Okay, now why is Jesus filled with the Spirit? Let's go backwards just a little bit. Um, if you were here a couple weeks ago, I actually cited this passage. So as Jesus is an adult, he shows up and he's baptized by John the Baptist. And then right after that, as Jesus is praying, heaven opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven. It's God saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So what this next section of Luke is going to work out is what does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God? What does that particular phrase mean? Now, most of us, when we hear the word son of God, we think it means that he's God himself, that he's divine, right? And that is part of the deal. But notice again our passage. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led into the Jordan by the Spirit into the wilderness. What Luke wants us to notice here is that what Jesus is about to do is not because he's God, but because he is a human being, he is a man who is completely filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Luke even changes up his sources. This is one of the reasons why we talked about the sources. If you compare this to Matthew and Mark, the way Luke writes this is slightly different to really emphasize the fact that Jesus is filled with the Spirit. That Jesus, the man, the human being, is filled with the Spirit. So we often think of, of, of being filled with the Spirit as either this like bonus thing that Jesus gets because he's God, and that's not the case. What Luke is emphasizing is Jesus is a man, a human being, like each of us here today, who has been filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit is not like Peter Parker getting bit by that spider and turning into a guy with special powers, okay, or something like that. But the idea, or Superman, or because the movie came out, so there's your obligatory Superman reference this week. You always got to stay current, right? Um, <laughs> the idea of being filled with the Spirit is relational. It's the idea that Jesus is closely connected to the Spirit of God in the same way that you and I can be closely connected to the Spirit of God. There's a couple other things that Luke um, counts on us to kind of remember. The writers of the Bible think that you're smart and they like you, and so they often count on you to remember a few things from earlier in the story. And if you don't know them yet, that's okay. I mean, this is how you find out. But for those of you guys who have had a chance to read the Bible over time, there's a few echoes here, right? In this passage, some stuff that you've seen before. Like, we've seen people um, cross the river into the, into the wilderness. And we've seen people in the wilderness. And we've seen them there for periods of 40. You guys might remember that Israel, when they came out of Egypt, was in the wilderness and was tested for 40 years. Israel didn't do so good with their testing. Now, Jesus is going to be tested for 40 days in the wilderness. And it sort of sets the scene what's going to happen next. But there's a big difference. When Israel was tested in the wilderness, it was God doing the testing. And here, the devil is doing the testing. And so not only are we going to find out something about Jesus as we move through this story, we're also going to find out something about the devil. So here's the scene. 40 days, the devil's been tempting Jesus for a while. If you look at this in the original languages, it's written in a way we're supposed to speed right through this really fast and get to the dialogue that's coming next. And so that's what we come to next. And so this is what we often call the temptations or the testings of Jesus. And the devil does three different things to him. In each of them, he talks to him first, and then Jesus gives a short, quick answer. And all of his answers have something in common, as we'll see in just a second. So first thing that happens, the devil says to him, he says, if you're the son of God, and there's an interesting thing about the original language here in Greek, um, when you ask somebody a question, you can, we do this with tone of voice. 
But in Greek, you can indicate what you expect the answer to be when you ask somebody a question. Um, this is A plus the indicative, Allie. She took Greek in college. Kip here? No? Okay. Um, trying to do a little shout out to the people who are desperately trying to turn, turn, hold on to the Greek that they learned once upon a time. So a better way to translate this would be the devil saying, hey, if you're the son of God, and we both know that you are, okay? He's trying to go for like a friendly sort of opening here with Jesus. If you're the son of God, and, and you know, I know you are, you know you are, so just show it by turning the stone to bread. Now, Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. Jesus does not have like super God powers that makes him not hungry. In fact, Luke pointed that out, okay, in case you were wondering otherwise. He is hungry right now. So this is an obvious thing. But what the devil's doing too is he's actually jumping in into an ongoing discussion about What's the primary way that God is involved in our world? This was something that was happening that was a very strong discussion during Jesus' time. Was God's biggest miracle in the wilderness giving manna to the Israelites? If you remember the story, the Israelites get out to the wilderness. They have no food. And God gives them this amazing, miraculous food called manna. Or manna means what's that in Hebrew because they'd never seen it before. And it miraculously came down in the sky every night. So that was for some folks who thought that God worked primarily through flashy miracles. That was the best thing that God did in the wilderness. But there was another school of thought, and Jesus is on this team, that the most miraculous thing, the best thing that God did in the wilderness was to make a covenant with Israel, to make a relationship with them, to say to Israel, you are going to be my God or you're, I'm going to be your God, and you are going to be my people, and then make a covenant with them. And so what the devil is asking Jesus is, which one, how, what kind of son of God are you going to be? Which way are we going to go? Are we going to go with flashy miracles, or are we going to go with relationship with God? And look at what Jesus' answer is. He says, it is written. He doesn't even enter into the argument. What Jesus does is he quotes a line from Deuteronomy, that man does not live by bread alone. He doesn't get into the argument. He just goes back to a verse that Jesus had probably learned when he was six years old and had talked about, if you remember that passage from Deuteronomy, when he got up and when he went to bed and when he was along the way. It was something that he had drilled into his heart his whole life. He doesn't try to argue. He just answers from the Scripture. You don't live by bread alone. Okay, so the devil says, all right, that's, that's, that's not working. So... Um, the friendly approach didn't do. So he tries to go super fast and get Jesus control, confused. And if, if you're following along in the passage, it says that he all at once showed him all of the nations of the world. The devil looking ahead knows that Jesus is supposed to be the king of everything. And he shows them all of the human kingdoms at once. It's like this amazing scene. And then having shown Jesus that, he says this to him really fast. He says, he says to him, I will give you all of their authority, all of the kingdoms. This word authority is going to be really big in the next couple of weeks. I'll give you all of their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, that's kind of a long, complicated sentence, and in the original language, it's even longer and more complicated. What the devil is trying to do is talk really complicated and really fast. 
You ever had people do that to you? Super complicated, super fast. You usually want to hold on to your wallet when that happens, right? And that's what he's kind of doing. He gives them this amazing vision and talks super fast and then just slips in at the end. Hey, all you got to do is bow down to me and it's good. Jesus is on it. And again, he doesn't fall for what's visually appealing. This must have been amazing. Can you imagine in an instant seeing all of humanity all at once? Remember, Jesus is a man. This would be completely amazing and bamboozling. But instead, Jesus is on his game. And he goes back to some lines that he had memorized when he was six. And answers the devil this way. It is written, quoting again from Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and serve him. And Jesus actually freestyles a little bit. He adds the word only. That's actually not in Deuteronomy. No. Only God. Only God. So the devil is trying to get a hold of Jesus. He's trying to get him to redefine what it means to be the Son of God. To get Jesus off of his mission. And the thing is, as readers, we don't even know what Jesus' mission is at this point either. This is an open question for us. So we're finding out just as much as the devil is about what this Jesus is about. And so the devil takes one more shot. And he realizes, okay, Jesus is obviously oriented towards Scripture. So let me try this. And so he takes him to Jerusalem. And if you've read the Gospel of Luke, you know that the way Luke is structured, it's all about Jesus going to Jerusalem. He only goes there once in the Gospel of Luke. It's a big moment in chapter 9 when he makes his decision to go to Jerusalem because that's where he's going to die. And then that's where God is going to raise him from the dead. But it's, the story of Luke is very oriented towards Jerusalem. Well... The devil is giving him a chance to take a shortcut here and takes him to Jerusalem right at the end and puts him on a prominent place. It's like the, the parapet of the temple. The point is not that it's high, it's just that it's visible. And once again, he gives him a chance to try a miracle. And he says to him, if you're the son of God, and he's using that same construction he used in the first temptation, if you're the son of God, he's going back to being friendly. If you're the Son of God, and I know that you are, okay? And these are your people. This is the temple of your God. This is where it's all going to happen. This is Mount Zion, where all the people of the earth are going to come when the Messiah comes. I I know you're that guy. He says, let's speed this up a little bit. Just throw yourself down. Throw yourself down from here. Now, he doesn't just say this. Remember, the devil knew that Jesus had been defining himself according to the Scriptures. So look at what the devil does. He quotes the Bible. He says, for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully so that they will lift up you up in their hands so that you will will not strike your foot against a stone. That's a great verse, isn't it? About how God takes care of us. We actually had that on a little picture that was above our son's crib when he was younger than he is now. Um, it's not above his bed. He's a big kid now. Not there anymore. That's a, that's a great promise, isn't it? And in fact, not only is that, but Psalm 91 that the devil is quoting here was considered by people at the time a psalm about the Messiah, a way that God was going to carefully preserve God's son. So here's the deal. 
I mean, you can go a long way with the Bible by misquoting it or quoting it out of context or making selective quotes or something like that. That's not what the devil's doing. He's quoting it correctly. He's quoting it in context. He's doing it in a way that makes sense. But here's the deal. The Bible's not just two verses. That if we're really going to be people who listen to the Bible and use God's Word as a, as a real resource and a power in our life, we need to hold a lot of it together in tension. And that's what the devil is counting on Jesus to forget to do. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. Jesus answers him once again, again from De- Deuteronomy. But Jesus makes one change. Previously he said, it is written. This time he says, it is said. The way that Jesus and his contemporaries understood Deuteronomy is that it was, for them, that was really the center of the Bible. That was the most important book. And it was where God spoke directly to his people. It wasn't just words on a page. It was the living God speaking living words to his living people. And so that's why Jesus makes this slight change here. He says, yeah, yeah, I know it's written there in the Psalms, but here's what God has said to me. Here's what God has said to me. You don't put the Lord your God to the test. That Jesus, when he was being tempted by the devil, when he's hungry, when he's in a bad place, when he's been getting hammered for 40 days, where maybe even Jesus himself at this point is not super completely clear as to what's next, Jesus knew how to answer because, like most people in his time, he had committed those words to memory. And Jesus didn't try to get super smart. He didn't try to make great arguments. He went back to lines from Deuteronomy that he had probably memorized when he was six and had been part of his life all along. So Jesus is able to stand up to the devil's temptation because he is a spirit-filled man and a spirit-filled man who has built his life on the rock of God's word. Both of those things are things that are completely within our range. These are not things that make Jesus unique from us, but every experience Jesus has in here are things that we can share. So how does it end up? Pretty simple. When the devil had finished all of his tempting, and the language here is very comprehensive, he left for a more opportune time. Except that's probably what the devil thinks that he's doing, except this was his best shot. He's lost. So we meet the devil for the first time, and how do we, what do we know about him by the end of this episode in Luke? That he's a defeated foe, and that you don't need some kind of special spiritual ninja power. You just need to have the knowledge of Scripture that a six-year-old who's been going to Sunday school can have. So what do we do with this in our life? That's John's deal. So here we go. So um, when I read this story, and Bob and I... One of the things I love about this format of teaching is not just that we get a really great teacher and Bob who knows a lot of stuff, but that I can spend all week talking to someone about the same scripture that I'm going through. And uh, Bob had a small group that he was leading that was going through the that has gone through these scriptures that we're going to be talking about. And and so when I I like to read the Bible kind of like Bob was talking about, where I just like to come without any thing on my mind, like okay, I, I, I here's this story about Jesus being tempted that I've probably read ten times. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna if as best I can come to it like new. And when I got done with my first reading, the thing that was super uh, obvious to me is I'll never be tempted like that. 
Like, I'll never have Satan come and like sit in my car and tell me to make stones and turn them into bread. And so the temptation is that you're you're going to uh, disengage from the story because we don't really have conversations with Satan about temptation. Like, I mean, we, we sometimes can call it that. But for us, day to day, temptation is kind of complicated. I mean, think about it. There, there's lots of stuff you might be tempted to do or not do. And you don't know if it's coming from your flesh, from, your, from Satan, from your past. Or your parents have said, never, ever, ever play cards. And you're like, man, I really want to play cards. And it's like, I'm tempted. Like, by who? Just because you want to play cards. And so it gets, it gets kind of complicated. So what I did was I put just some of these uh, things that you might be tempted to do this week. Uh, you might be tempted to gossip. Maybe about a coworker, maybe about um, somebody in our government, whatever. You got to gossip there. Uh, let's see. You might be tempted to overspend this week. Okay, so we'll put there and like all the husbands are like, see, honey. No, I'm, I'm, anyway, so you might be tempted to have pride. And the cool thing about being tempted to have pride is you, you know, it probably looks pretty good. You're probably just like, no, I'm just awesome. I don't know. But anyway, so you don't even know you're being tempted. It's just, it's just, you just know you're awesome and you want to tell somebody and that doesn't, that's not tempting, right? Um, You might be tempted to cheat like I'm tempted to do when we try to get Jen uh, on Fish Fest and we use four different email addresses, okay? So uh, you might be tempted to cheat. All right. Ooh, what's the next? Ooh, aren't you scared? Like, please don't, don't grab mine. Oh, and then there's all that sex stuff, right? Like premarital sex, living with someone, having an affair, looking at stuff on the internet, lusting after your boss, whatever. Okay. All that sex stuff. I just thought we'd put it in there because there's just way too many cards for that. Uh, uh, anyway. Um, oh, you might be tempted to medicate maybe through alcohol or through some pills or through some stuff that you had after that shoulder injury that now it's like, well, I don't know. I just take it to go to sleep or, you know, uh, whatever. So you might be tempted to, to medicate. We'll put this one back here. I don't know if you can see it. And then, uh, oh, you might be tempted to overeat. Oh, man. You're passing out Slim Jims? Are you kidding me? Like, why not just pass out, you know, I don't know. Anyway, um, oh, there we go. So over, overeating. But here's the thing. So all of these stuff we can kind of relate to. But, but in reality... Like, is overeating really a temptation, or is it just that we know we shouldn't? Like, I, my thing is, I put on my Facebook this week, Chipotle chips. I mean, honestly, I will, I will rob a bank for Chipotle chips. I'll do it. I've actually walked into Chipotle, and, and just like with a, everybody down on the ground, grab two things, and go, I love Chipotle chips. But really, is that... And so, you know, I, I'm sitting there in line and I'm ordering the burrito and it's like, oh, no rice, trying to cut down on the carbs, you know, and uh, just black beans with the protein and then, and 17 bags of chips. Like, like oh, you know, I, I, did, I, did, I didn't mean that. Right? But is that really a temptation? Now, see, it's super important that we get this, even though I know I'm, I'm joking around and everything, but it's super important that we get this because I think a lot of times we call things temptation that aren't, and then we water down what really, really is. 
And so um, I put kind of a definition of temptation that, that I'm going to be using in the next few minutes. Um, the, the internal struggle of wanting to have our needs met outside of God's design and will for us. That's what we're going to call temptation. Because quite frankly, whether you eat a bag of chips or not, I don't think God really even cares, okay? I mean, to some extent he might, but instead of take out the chips and the carbs and all that, are you trying to find, get your needs met by something other than your heavenly father? That's what God is interested in. Am I using food to medicate myself so that I don't have to deal with some of my things? Am I, am I uh, overspending? Am I cheating on something? Because I, I'm, I don't think my heavenly father is going to take care of me. And by the way, they get all those taxes anyway. And so if I just put another little number, it's better. You know? and, and, and so we, we cheat and we go, it's bad to cheat on your taxes. The thing that's bad is to try to get our needs met outside of this heavenly father that loves us. We, we, we go to sexuality and we think, wow, this and that. And I really love her and all this kind of stuff. That's not even the point. The point is God's design and will. Are you trying to shortcut it? If you are, that's temptation. And here's the thing. A lot of times it's just ourselves. I, I was writing out some thoughts this week. And one of the thoughts I, I, I wrote out was, if you're living your life in the flesh... No temptation required. Like if I'm living my life the way I want to live my life, just doing the things I want, Satan doesn't need to do anything. He's just like, good, you're already taken care of. I'll I'll head off over here and get to someone who's like Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. I, I got some real work to do. But I know for my own life, when I have a week where I'm just going after my own stuff, Satan's just like, great job. See you later. Let me know when you start to turn your life around. I'll be back, you know, right? So here's the thing I want us to get. We're going to go back to verse four for just a little bit. And we're going to see some keys that I hope we can take into this week. As you begin to wrestle with, is that really a temptation? What's really happening on the inside right now? Am I trying to get my needs met outside of God's design and will for my life? So uh, let's look at Luke chapter four, verse one. Bob already went over it, so we won't take too long, but it starts out Jesus, okay? Now, oftentimes when you see that, you think of this Jesus, okay? And you think, well, no one's going to tempt that dude. He, like, looks holy. Like, he looks like, I wouldn't try to tempt that guy. First of all, he looks kind of angry. So anyway, so then there's this, he looks really angry. And so we don't, you know, and then there's this Jesus, like, okay, cool. We love, we love that Jesus. But here, here's, what I, here's what I want us to see. And Bob was touching on this. Jesus was a man. And, 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 and he was human. And so this, what we're about to read, happened on a day in his life. I mean, think about this. When Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, that started on a day. He wakes up. Eats his Captain Crunch, okay? And he's like, wow, I think I'm going to build some, you know, chairs or whatever, you know, because he's Jesus. He's a carpenter. I'm going to work with my dad or whatever. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. This is just, he's a man. Now, look, we, I know he's God, and that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. But the thing is, he could have sinned. He's just like you and I. He's a guy. This happened on a day. He could go back right now and circle it on his calendar. 
I remember that day. It was a day just like normal. where I was going to go to work and all this kind of stuff. And the Holy Spirit said, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, I want to tell you how exciting this is. Because for some of us, we're looking at our lives and the temptations that we have and we've had for a long time. And we're going, can I ever get over this? It's the same thing every time. Can I ever get past this in my life? And the answer is yes. A man or a woman full of the Holy Spirit can get over this. And this was Jesus. And it's exciting news to know that that same Holy Spirit that's guiding Jesus, that's empowering Jesus, that's filling Jesus is available to you today. As we begin to submit our lives to God. So watch what happens. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He leaves the Jordan. He leaves what's comfortable. He leaves really a lot of Israel's history. The Jordan was the river in Joshua where God essentially puts his hand down. The waters build up and the rest kind of go and the Israelites go across. This was a big part of their story because in the Old Testament, it was all about the land, all about the land. I'm going to give you this land flowing with milk and honey. You will be my people. I will be your God. It was all about that. And Jesus goes, no, no, we're leaving that. And it's going to be something totally different. He leaves what was familiar. And he goes into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And you're thinking to yourself, man, how does this relate to me? Well, let me tell you, as I've seen people in my own life, as I've seen people get stuck, oftentimes the answer is found just in this one little verse. Number one, when I get stuck in my life, there's usually not an empowering of the Holy Spirit. I'm empowering myself. I'm trying to take care of it. And so the thing I'm getting caught up in is me trying to fulfill my need outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I don't leave room for the Holy Spirit. I just, I leave room for myself and I try to figure it out. That's the one thing. The second thing is I don't leave the Jordan. I stay in the same pattern with the same people and the same daily routine and I can't get over it. I don't know if this has ever been you. If you have a temptation or a sin that you fall into or whatever. Isn't it true that your pattern is, it kind of falls in and, and, and but with all the people I've counseled and seen and talked to, this is the pattern. You sin. You feel bad. You say, I'm never going to do that again. And you feel good because you're never going to do that again. And the next day you do it again and you feel shame and you go, why? Why am I doing this again? I'm I'm, okay now. Now I'm really never going to do it again. And so then you go and the next day and it comes up again and you do it again. And then you go, now I'm really. I ain't even playing now. I'm see, I'm I'll never ever do that again. And it's called the cycle of shame. And so the more you commit to, I'm not going to do it again. And the more you do it again, the bigger the shame. And guess what happens? We run from our heavenly father because we don't want him to see us like this. And when I, when I fix it all, I'll come back. It doesn't work. Sometimes it means leaving the Jordan. Sometimes it means going to a meeting. Sometimes it means calling up and some, some, telling someone, I got a problem. Sometimes it means going to someone and asking for forgiveness. Sometimes it means leaving what's comfortable and what you know to get out of there to master this temptation, whatever it is. Sometimes it means cutting up the credit cards. Yeah, but how am I going to pay for gas? I, look, it means leaving the Jordan and then being led by the Spirit. So here's what happens. For 40 days, he's tempted by the devil. 
I don't ever want to get into that position <laughs> where for 40, like, really? You're back again? Like, you know what? 40 days. He ate nothing. And then as Bob was saying, he became hungry. Now, here, here's the thing I want to get back to real quick, and then we'll close it up. The verse that Jesus quotes, he quotes a little part of the verse. But the principle that's in that verse in Deuteronomy is the key, I think. And, and, and I think... If I were to do a study on Luke, I think these are all building. These temptations are all building on them. And they can all really be answered with this one thing. Here's what Jesus says. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. And watch this. Here's what he says. This is where he gets it from. It's from uh, uh, God talking. Like, he, like Bob was saying, God is talking to his people. He says, he humbled you. God humbled you. Causing you to hunger. Listen. Then feeding you with manna. The hunger is not the problem. It's when we try to shortcut getting fed outside of God's design. The fact that you like some girl, like some guy, like money, like to eat, like whatever it is here. You like all that kind of stuff. That's not the problem. God has created us with these needs and desires. He's created us with life to be lived. The need for companionship, all these things. It's when we go with food that we provide ourselves. Now listen, here's what he was saying. This is what Bob touched on. Which neither of you or your ancestors had known. Isn't it true? Oftentimes in the midst of the temptation, when you're just about to pull the trigger on whatever it is, you've got the credit card and it's just like, oh, you can swipe it right here, sir. You're like, I know. I mean, you're like so fast. You got right at that moment. Isn't it true that you think I don't see another way out? I don't know how to get these needs met unless I... Or unless I, I have a deep desire and I don't see a way out. Guess what? You don't have to because our heavenly father will feed you with stuff that maybe you've never even seen before. Maybe it's a person you've never met or a situation. All he wants is obedience in that direction. So he says to teach you that man doesn't live on bread alone. To teach you, I know you, it feels like you need this right now and it's going to feel good and it's going to be awesome. Your heavenly father is here to tell you, you do not live on that stuff. What we live on and how our needs get met. And as Jesus showed us in all three of those things is that does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus shows us the way to handle temptation. It's through the word of God. It's through knowing it, through living it, through seeking it, through memorization, through going, okay, this is, and, and trust me, I study the Bible. Some of it's lame. Like I wish it wasn't in there. Like I wish it didn't say that. But here's the thing. Every time I commit myself to practicing what it says, my needs get met. And usually in a much more fulfilling way. 